This piece, I, I can think of it as kind of divided into two parts. And each of those parts, I can kind of understand, presents difficulties for law students or has in the past presented difficulties for students. The first is on this kind of concept of coercion and involves some arguments that a lot of people find counterintuitive. And we'll talk about that in, in a moment. The second part cashes out that new concept of coercion for its implications on policy, and in particular tax policies and redistributive policies. But it can kind of vacillate between seeming a little bit anachronistic and being a little bit in the weeds. Nonetheless, I, I still think it's beautifully written, and I still think there's a lot of wisdom here uh, to be gained from it, and a lot of foresight in terms of law and economics. I think Hale is one of the pioneers of law and economics. Let's go back now and start with the, with the first part. Understanding this piece as a broader part of the legal realist movement, and in particular one that kind of carries on the project of attacking the hidden assumptions of formalism and hidden assumptions which have served the interests of the powerful. This is uh, kind of continuous with the other pieces that we read in that part of its purpose is to expose unthinking assumptions as in fact choices, whether deliberate or not. Now, the assumption here should be pretty familiar to you. It's, it is part of modern rhetoric, too. It's, it, the piece starts with a poem, the basic idea of which is that government works best that governs least. Okay, now we've all heard that before. So let's start with this kind of conventional view against which Hale is writing, one that still has force in the modern era, and that's that government through law should kind of get out of the way, except where it's needed. Government is always, you know, whenever it intervenes, is going to cause some harm, and that amount of harm is only justified where it can do a greater good. And so practically, for people like Carver, the guy against whom Hale is writing here, that means that government should do very little, perhaps provide public goods, like for the common defense or for lighthouses, uh, but very little else. So who is this guy Carver who wrote the book that this is, at least on its surface, a review of, although the piece, you know, this piece looms large in, in legal scholarship, whereas Carver's work I'm not sure is as important or remembered. But you can get to it on Google Books and, and take a look. And, and it's not bad. It contains some ideas that, are, that still have force today. And he's making what are now kind of typical points about government failures that Government intervention can lead to unforeseen consequences, and that's a reason to be distrustful of it, and also points to kind of the incompetence and corruption of government agents as a reason to be suspicious of government's involvement. The unstated assumption is that when government stays out, the people are more free. So markets are free when they are unregulated, and people are more free when they are participating in unregulated markets. It's not that government should never get involved, but should only do so when it's necessary. Now, Carver didn't make the point that Hayek made, that the market can be a better aggregator of information that would be unavailable to a central planner. So this is a, a defense of free markets, which sounds in the better use of information by kind of disaggregated agents, that a central planner just can't know all of the productive capacities and wants of the people. And so the invisible hand of the market is able silently but effectively to gather all of that information and lead to better overall choices. We're not going to get into that theory right now, and Carver doesn't make it, and here Hale doesn't respond to it. But Carver did note the choice between regulation by government and not regulation was between two different kinds of markets. 
or equivalently two different kinds of regulatory mechanisms. So in, in the one, you use dollars to signify your preferences, and in the other, you use votes. Analyzing markets that use dollars to signal choices is just basic economics, and looking at the regulation of such things is basic law and economics. Looking at public institutions as being markets involving preferences and, and using votes to signal those preferences and, and having buyers and sellers, well, that's the theory of public choice, which is law and economics applied to representative institutions in a nutshell. And we'll get back to that a little bit later in the course. For now, this basic choice between aggregating the preferences of the people through their democratic votes or through their willingness to spend dollars is the question that this piece focuses on. And for Carver, the forum of dollars is the free one, the one which is uncoerced, the one of voluntary association. And decisions made through the market for votes that involve the engines of government, these are the ones that involve coercion. And here's where Hale's major idea in this piece comes in. That government doesn't alter the quantity of freedom. It moves it around. And, and I think the basic idea is this. When government creates a right, there's a correlative duty. And so the creation of a right gives some freedom to one person but takes it from another. Similarly, if you have a privilege to do something, again, thinking back to Hofeld, and there's a correlative no right, meaning that the other can't call on the state to stop you or to make you do something, what's really going on there is we're leaving people to private coercions back and forth based on their power. So no matter what government does, people are subject to coercions either from government itself or from private entities. The freedom of a private employer to make hiring decisions and to have employees is backed up by government by a simultaneous constraint on the freedom of those same employees or people who would be employees to raid the bank account and take the so-called property of the employer. So freedom is created in the employer by taking away freedoms of the people that he or she would employ. Now, the point of that is not to revisit whether we should allow everyone to raid everyone else's bank account whenever they want and to replace duties with privileges. Uh, rather, it's to observe that when we think about coercion, when we think about that word, we're really thinking of bad coercion. And we think coercion is bad because the power given, whether it's to a private person or to government agents, is contrary to some baseline sense of entitlement that we think is right. In other words, we have necessarily a separate moral theory in our heads about what kinds of distributions of power and freedom are just and which are wrong. The point here is is not that we shouldn't have such a separate theory. The point is that we have one. And that's part of the legal realist movement is, is exposing the fact that things that we take for granted, in fact, embed further principles and ideas. And we're trying to make those plain. And so here, coercion and thus freedom or liberty, those are empty concepts on their own. They are, in a sense, the words we give to conclusions of arguments and not arguments in and of themselves. So we might try to go further here and think about felt coercion or, or things that we might identify as coercive. So being coerced not to take the money the law has identified as belonging to someone else may not feel coercive. In other words, you think, well, I, of course I can't go and raid someone's bank account or, or, or take their money. I, I don't feel coerced in not doing that. But that's because you have a, a separate account of what good and bad coercions are. In fact, you are coerced, right? There is a law which will use power to stop you from doing that thing. Now, once we get here to the point of 
rethinking what it is that we've assumed, then we can get a better account of what it is we really mean when we use the word freedom. Okay, a couple of other examples. You know, why can't I take your car, quote unquote, your car? Uh, Government coerces me at your insistence not to do so. But we think of this as good coercion. Why is it good? Well, because of policy, moral theories, etc. But the important point is that it's not enough just to say that it's coercion. And so too, when an employer pays an employee, this is coercive because the employee has the right to withhold his or her labor. And the employer is coerced from taking it. The employer cannot just take that labor. There is law which will prevent that. So the, the payment made by the employer to the employee is made against a background coercive right. Okay, so the point here is to call something coercive is not to condemn it, at least not on its own. And yet it's a a word that we use to condemn. It's a word that is a a smear. So if, if coercion is everywhere, why do we only use it sometimes? It must be that we have a particular sense in which we recognize something as coercive in the bad sense. And that sense implies a theory of law. So what is it? And that's really the point of the legal realists, that when people say you know, this legal rule is justified because it's non-coercive or we shouldn't adopt this legal rule because it's unduly restrictive of freedom, that those arguments are not themselves reasons. They're not themselves a theory. Instead, they are hiding a theory of law, but there is always a theory there. So stop taking things for granted. Stop taking for granted that we know what the law is and understand that the law is what we make it. That's the general legal realist critique of formalism. And here, Hale points to the ideas of freedom and coercion as the empty formalisms. And Hale actually goes a little bit further and shows how law, either subconsciously or not, tries to hide the fact uh, that it's coercing. It tries to hide these facts in a number of ways. Is it bad coercive to compel someone to commit a positive act, but maybe neutral or good coercive to compel them not to do something? It it does feel that way. So let me restate that. If the law asks you to do something, that seems more restrictive of your freedom than if the law tells you not to do something which is bad, right? That seems like this is, again, like don't go steal from someone's bank account. Doesn't seem like bad coercive, but telling someone you should go, you, you need to be a bus driver in order to make money for the state, that does seem bad coercive. But Hale notes that law often punishes failures to act and therefore actually has a requirement for you to do something in it. But when it does it, 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 the law describes what it's doing as preventing you from doing something bad. So the, the violation here is not that you failed to show up and, and do your job. It's that you breached a contract. You didn't fail to perform a positive act. You performed a bad positive act, breaching. You breached a contract. The law of negligence is replete with instances of making people liable for failing to perform acts. You're liable because you acted negligently and injured a pedestrian with your car. What did you actually do? Maybe you failed to hit the brakes when a reasonable person paying attention would have. And so what the law requires you to do is to hit the brakes in that circumstance, to do something, and you're being punished for your, or held liable for, your omission. The upshot is that it doesn't work just to say that coercion, the bad coercion is formally instances where government is making you do something against your will. 
and it's not bad coercion when they tell you not to do particular things. That, that too, is a further conclusion which requires other argument. Okay, so the upshot is that we live in a web, a sea of coercion. Each person's power in the community is a product of his or her ability to coerce others. The laborer's productivity, for example, is only the potential harm that would be done to that laborer's employer if he or she left. The less power the employee has to leave, the more power the employer has. To nationalize a business or or give to the workers ownership of a business doesn't alter the total amount of government coercion, which must be conserved, but it moves it around. But how we allocate those freedoms and how we allocate that coercion might alter the actual physical freedom to exercise an individual's will. Let me give an example. So, so Hale gave the example of driving, but we could take that further and we could ask, do restrictive traffic laws make us more or less free? In a formal sense, a law saying that you have to stop at stoplights appears to make you less free. You are coerced from just blasting through the stoplight. But it kind of depends on what we mean by this. And in a physical sense, traffic laws may make us far more free. If others are coerced and forced to stop at traffic lights, then in a very real sense, you now have the actual freedom to drive from here to Atlanta. Would you have that actual freedom if there were no such laws? I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't go out driving if there were no traffic laws. All right, so at the end of all of this first part, what's been accomplished? Well, Hale hopes that you have seen that what won't work in an argument over government policy is to say that the policy is coercive, full stop, or that another policy is better protective of freedom. It's not that you can't make an argument related to coercion or freedom, but you need to do more than simply observe that there is a restriction or that there is a transfer of property. You need more than simply to say that that involves a government intrusion and therefore an interference in the natural freedom of the people. So let's see how that shakes out in part two of the paper. And here Hale attacks Carver's approach to the problem of wealth inequality. You know, why should some people have more money than others? Why should they make more money than others? What are the reasons for that? It's clearly a huge social problem at the time. It's becoming increasingly a social problem now. And and so what to do about it? And Carver's solution, again, because he's fearful of government intervention and coercive redistributions, is to engage in a series of what we might call nudges to increase the effectiveness of the workers' coercive weapons, the power to withhold their labor. So you can do this by, um, Carver describes it as balancing market forces, just so, so that wages go up in real terms. And he advocates things like restricting immigration, increasing education, other things that would allow workers to have more power to withhold their labor. You see, from Carver's perspective, if we do things which end up having the effect of giving workers more power, we haven't really done, we've not directly constrained the freedom of employers or constrained or uh, the freedom of, of employees. We've just done things which have had an effect in the market that allows people freely to organize themselves. Now, as you know, Hale thinks that's a mistaken premise. And further, he thinks that the kinds of interventions that Carver wants to engage in, increasing the level of education of workers, restricting immigration, that these actually will have indeterminate effects. It's hard to know how they will turn out. And so if you've committed to doing 
indirectly something that will have the effect of increasing the coercive power of one set of people, why not just do that thing directly if you think it's a good thing? In other words, why not use governmental power directly to affect the calculus of coercion among the people? In particular, why not use tax policy to transfer wealth or to pass wage and hour laws or to do other things that directly better the lot of the least well-off? From the first part of the paper, we know that the answer, or Hale argues that the answer can't be that the latter, the direct route, is coercive. There has to be a further reason about why you don't want government to do that thing, why you don't want those policies. For Hale, we need to go back and look at why we tolerate the inequality of income or wealth at all. Like, why do we tolerate these things? What what are the reasons that we think it's okay for one person to have more resources and money than another person, and therefore to have more coercive power in the market than another person? And Hale is not a communist. He's not saying that there is no reason for there to be such inequality. In fact, he identifies some. One is the incentive effect. Allowing an inequality gives people an incentive to do things which contribute to the social good. That he calls incentive income. It's the income that you need to kind of, you know, get off of your butt and uh, do something productive. And if you start taking that away, then you reduce people's incentives to do things which contribute to the public good. The other reason you might tolerate it is that if you did things directly in too great a magnitude to reallocate wealth, you might have temporary dislocations in the economy, shocks to the system which may cause recessions or other things. So the rest of the paper follows on that by saying if these are your purposes in allowing inequality and you don't mind intervening to remedy inequality so long as they don't contravene these principles, then what would your policy look like? And so we're on to identifying taxes which don't affect the prospective desire to work or save or be productive. And, and here, by the way, we're using the terms kind of tax and, and, and redistribution, but th- this is just a stand-in for any kind of regulation that reallocates power among the society. All right, so using this, Hale argues that the objections that some have to taxing away non-incentive income and using it to equalize non-incentive income, that these objections basically all lie back in the fundamental mistake he identified in the first part of the paper, and that's lazily relying on some idea of what government actions are coercive and which are freedom-enhancing. So some things I'm going to ask you about are the faculty theory that he identifies, the faculty theory of taxation. What is that, and, and how is it at odds with the equalization theory? What's being equalized, and in what way? Carver apparently doesn't accept the ability theory, but believes in a what he calls a kind of a least sacrifice utilitarian theory. What, what is that, and how does it differ from Hale's theory? And what do you think, finally, of the streetcar analogy that Hale uses, where you see someone getting back $4.95? I already said getting back. I've given it away. But uh, you see someone at a streetcar getting $4.95 handed to them, and another person get a nickel. And they otherwise both look like riders. They both both look equivalent. And you think, well, that's unfair. One of them got $4.95 and the other got back, got five cents. Seems unfair. Until you realize that that's changed that they're getting back. The, the person who got back $4.95 maybe had, had paid, I don't know, $5. The person who got back five cents had paid a dime, right? So you're seeing change and it, now it seems totally fair. And so your sense of fairness there is relative to the context in which the money is being handed back. 
It's relative to what you think they gave in order to get that money back. How is that relevant here? What is Hale's argument about that? All right, I, I think that's enough for now. There's there's a lot in here, and I want you to stew on it after really getting your head around the argument that he makes about coercion and the supposed lack of coercion uh, embedded in our jurisprudence. Okay, hopefully you've got a bunch of questions and, and ideas, and I look forward to reading about them. 